Hello. Thanks for listening to this Dharma podcast. I hope you consider that in accordance with the Buddhist tradition, all of my work as a teacher is offered without charge and supported entirely by donations only. If you'd like to support this work, you'll find a PayPal button on dharmapunksnyc.com. On our website, you'll find resources and a free sample from my Wisdom Publications book, Unsubscribe, which is available at bookstores and online retail outlets. Thanks for listening. So tonight's talk... Guilt and shame. I have no idea how I come up with the topics, by the way. They just kind of appear to me very often from the counseling work I do, meeting with individuals one-on-one, themes come up, and it just seems like, okay, I guess I should be talking about this, because it just seems to come up in a lot of the one-on-one counseling. So... uh, Tonight's going to be about uh, understanding the psychological underpinnings of guilt and shame, the differences, how certain degrees can be adaptive and healthy, but very often can be pathological and lead to significant degrees of distress and lack of well-being. And we'll also, of course, talk about ways to address, and we will finally lead a meditation that actively addresses the pathological forms of uh, guilt and shame. And then we'll have time for questions. So uh, thank you all so much for being here. Relax, settle in. And um, as always, the talk will wind up on dharmapunksnyc.podbean.com and uh, where all the other podcasts uh, are housed. And also a bunch are on Insight Timer. So um, we are a... uh, Social species, of course, hardwired for connection and attachment. And uh, we connect with others for care, emotion, co-regulation, for feelings most off of, most importantly, of security and confidence to explore the world. That's what we're born with. Twin drives to attach for security and also to explore And uh, we have uh, our species survived in clans and tribes and tribal circuitry is wired into the brain. Uh, Entire circuits in the um, dorsal anterior cingulate cortex, uh, gyrus, uh, orbital frontal, Um, involving multiple regions, including ventral uh, and dorsal uh, frontal, uh, involve uh, cementing us together to secure tribal adherence. uh, And for the bulk of our ancestral history, to have done something that would in some way diminish 
or complicate the degree of tribal connections we sustained would be not only damaging to the tribe itself, would be exceedingly uh, uh, diminishing to our own prospects for survival. If for some reason we acted in a way that led to expulsion from a clan or a tribe, we wouldn't probably have let, lived long enough to pass down our genes to succeeding generations if we didn't act in, to some degree of altruism or in some way uh, uh, didn't develop some kind of moral circuitry. So as the result of the fact that our species so to survive, so dependent upon uh, the forming of uh, clans, uh, as uh, as our means to both uh, adapt to environments and all that, eventually over the course of natural selection, these circuits appeared. And um, so guilt is a sense of remorse or emotional discomfort for actions that come at the expense of a tribe. And the wiring of guilt, and there's various different uh, clinical studies that show, again, some of the regions I mentioned in both the frontal lobe as well as in uh, the dorsal anterior cingulate cortex and other regions that are there to maintain, uh, to signal to us when we've acted in ways that are antisocial or anti-tribal and the point of these circuits is to impel us to limit our harmful behaviors and to repair uh, damaging actions that we've uh, uh, are responsible for. As opposed to guilt, which is a sense of remorse for specific anti-tribal actions, shame is, uh, especially as it's been largely defined today and clinical psychology and psychological theory is more about negative feelings in regards to oneself. So one would feel guilt for an action, but a sense of shame for one's identity or for something about our um, global self, who we are. So again, guilt is about actions. Shame is about one's uh, endemic uh, self, one's uh, core identity, as it were. Um, shame, like hopelessness and sadness, is mediated entirely by right brain regions and leads to uh, parasympathetic withdrawal states. It's, in other words, it's developed earlier in life, actually. Shame, uh, a felt negative feeling about oneself, actually stems from, as we'll see later, early attachment wounds. Guilt is developed later. Um, it's linked to learned social standards, uh, ethics, moralities, and it's 
develop not only in family systems, but also in cultural exchanges, peer groups, and so forth. So guilt is by far, not only in, involves feelings, but it also involves cognitive ideas. Whereas shame, as we'll see, is actually uh, far predates a lot of our cognitive development. It's from very early infancy. And it, it's more about the way we feel about ourselves than the way we think about our actions. So um, in Buddhism, guilt has a lot of different names. Um, Hiri and Otapa, a sense of a conscious dismay that restrains us from repeating harmful acts that in some way uh, diminishes our relationships or bonds with others. And Samvega is a gut feeling of discomfort also that's associated with guilt. And largely in the Buddhist canon, Hiriyotapa and Samvega are associated with adaptive behaviors and are considered to be um, uh, part and parcel of one spiritual practice and a uh, evince a kind of psychological well-being and maturity. Uh, when guilt works, we empathize with those we've wounded and we feel inspired to repair the relationship. Um, one neuroscientist, uh, Alex Korb, talks about that people who can process guilt tend to be more sympathetic and empathetic, um, think about the consequences of their actions and their behavior, and are less prone to lie and uh, engage in harmful acts. So uh, he sees it as a very adaptive function. Um, and certainly those who lack any sense of guilt or report never feeling guilt or remorse um, can be often found to uh, be those with narcissistic pathological defenses where they feel the need to compensate for early wounds by um, constructing an ideal ego that must be admired by others and can never be seen at fault. Um, sociopaths also who don't have wiring of their mirror neurons and therefore can't empathize with others uh, also will very often struggle to feel any guilt or remorse over actions. It's when it's healthy, guilt is not pervasive. It's if you have a healthy sense of guilt and you feel uncomfortable or remorseful over an action and you talk to somebody outside of your family system and spiritual path, they will most likely validate that the action that you feel guilty over was in fact to some degree unhealthy and they will approve of your desire to make some form of amends, whether it's an acknowledgement or an apology or redress of some form. But, um, you know, there's also, of course, 
while we talk about the positives that can be resultant from guilt, there's also many, 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 many negatives, which are guilt can be pathological. It can be disproportionate, even entirely imagined. People can, for example, have survivor's guilt, where they survive a traumatic childhood or survive uh, a terrible accident or survive events in a war, uh, et cetera, and feel a sense of they somehow unfairly or didn't deserve to be the sole survivor and can feel a great degree of guilt, even though clearly they didn't do anything wrong and, uh, and are just essentially punishing themselves. Um, in traumatic guilt, um, uh, victims of abuse will blame themselves for the pain that they experienced. So very often children who survived sexual or uh, physical abuse will still feel a sense of guilt as if in some way they were responsible for the actions of the adults or those who are older than them in the family system. So that's, uh, of course, ways that guilt can be pathological, but by and large, pathological guilt is ingrained in family systems, religions, cults, and certain cultures as a means of coercion, manipulating allegiance, and can induce a feeling of remorse over completely, utterly healthy sexual desires uh, can induce a feeling of remorse over arbitrary and entirely outdated moral schemas. And I certainly grew up with a great deal of aversion to uh, any uh, religious uh, practice that uh, induced a pathological sense of guilt over entirely healthy sex uh, desires, whether same-sex desires or desires to explore different points of view outside of a strict doctrine and so forth. And pathological guilt or unhealthy guilt is almost invariably defined by pervasiveness in that um, it's not only felt for those actions that we occasionally take that are transgressive, but are felt for uh, multiple ongoing actions that simply have to do with failure to live up to some arbitrary expectation of another, of another member of a group or clan or religious uh, circle. Uh, clearly, unhealthy guilt can be known if um, we acknowledge our sense of guilt to people outside of our family of origin or our upbringing or our religious affiliation or even our culture. Uh, if it's unhealthy, other people will say, hey, wait a second, <laughs> that seems a little maladaptive or you're beating yourself up for something that um, 
seems very, very strange. And uh, uh, it seems almost like you're, you're trying to attain a degree of perfectionism that's unhealthy. Uh, unhealthy guilt often derives from uh, early abandonments that lead us to seek ideal ego states to compensate for feelings of unworthiness. Um, the Buddha was very concerned about unhealthy guilt. In his teaching to his son Rahula, in the Rahula Sutta, he teaches his son about how to feel appropriate guilt. And he talks about it being something that one would experience for one's actions, something that one would acknowledge to someone who's wiser. But then the Buddha talks about it would not become a lasting story that you would tell about yourself. In other words, once again, guilt is something that one experiences over a few specific acts that anyone else would be able to see is transgressive, not a pervasive feeling about all of our acts or about our failure to live up to um, the standards of a, of a small group of people. Um, and as well, we can also tell... Uh, pathological guilt from healthy sense of guilt because pathological guilt will invariably result in maladaptive defenses because it becomes so painful that people have to defend themselves against the pervasiveness of their feelings of guilt. And so such people will rely on compartmentalization where they will entirely deny or block awareness of certain parts of their life because it's so unpleasant and so uh, rife with a feeling of uh, something is wrong. Uh, they will rely on excessive justification and defensiveness rather than simply accept that they acted the way that they did and without adding a whole sense of morality or ethics over it. Uh, very often people with excessive pathological guilt will uh, fall into self-punishment as a way to ward off feelings of guilt. Uh, um, there's a clinical paper I looked at called When Guilt Evokes Self-Punishment from the University of Netherlands. And one of the biggest tells of people who have um, pathological guilt is avoidance coping. They'll avoid difficult conversations or trying to work through conflicts because they have such a sense of guilt, they will then avoid repairing relationships or working through uh, challenges. Um, so simply put, to cover to, in a nutshell what we've talked about guilt, um, Healthy guilt leads to adaptive actions that bring us closer and allow us to maintain and sustain deep relationships. It's not pervasive. It's something that crops up only uh, due to, uh, you know, uh, the actions that we undertake now and then generally when we're stressed out that leads to a sense of having transgressed or acted in a way that's not uh, 
that's not uh, compassionate or at least um, uh, kind towards others. Um, if we don't feel any guilt, that can be a sign of narcissistic defenses or um, even, even sociopathy. On the other hand, pathological guilt is a, is a sense as a ongoing sense that one hasn't done enough, that one is not living up to some arbitrary moral standard that has been embedded in us early in life. Um, and we can only really know for sure when healthy guilt becomes pathological by checking our, what we feel guilty about with others outside of our direct family or direct religious affiliations. We need to essentially connect with people on who are not been uh, uh, inured or ingrained with the same moral codes. So, um, Acting in accordance with one's sense of guilt, by the way, even if it's healthy, does not often invariably alleviate one's sense of guilt, interestingly. Um, guilt is, even when it's healthy, is a factor of what Freud called the superego, um, or region, it's hosted by regions of the brain that are bilateral, um, and as such, they can be so deeply ingrained that it can be difficult to change immediately or quickly or alleviate one's sense of guilt. So while one acts on one's, one can repair a relationship or apologize out of a sense of guilt, that sense of guilt might not be alleviated immediately. Interestingly enough, in the early Buddhist canon, um, there is no teaching about burning off karma for bad acts. Um, the Buddha, uh, in fact, there's a famous case where the Buddha allowed into the Sangha a serial killer named Angulimala, who killed over 900 people, who's abandoned, who uh, killed entire villages. And even after Angulimala lived, a, became a monk and lived a spiritual life, he was still not only beset with feelings of guilt, he was also constantly being attacked by the relatives and family members of those he had killed in the past. So he still had to live with the ramifications of his actions. So even though we might um, uh, act to atone for something, uh, it's not a guarantee that the guilt will be uh, alleviated some people it will, others it might um, take repeated actions over the course of one's life before it starts to show any signs of amelioration. Now let's go towards uh, shame. Shame, again, guilt is about actions. Shame is about one's, how one regards one's sense of self. So it's not about so much our actions, about, it's about how we feel about our core identity. Um, it can be associated with, shame can be associated with pathological guilt. People who do feel a, a great degree of what's called core shame or this endemic feeling that they are fundamentally flawed 
there's something wrong with us, they can, that can, as uh, the brain develops, turn into an overweening sense of guilt that everything we do is somehow not good enough. But shame, again, has to do with how we feel about our sense of self, not our specific actions. So what causes shame? Um, uh, there's a lot of different underpinnings. Of course, those who experienced uh, insecure attachment, especially those who experienced anxious attachment in childhood, are shown to have over uh, longitudinal attachment studies, tend to experience what can be called core shame or feeling that there's something unhealthy about one's core self. Um, Another factor, well, why is that? Because the child uh, who has an unreliable caregiver or doesn't have a reliable sense of attachment will begin to um, blame itself because infants can only assume there's something wrong with themselves, their self, their, their core if a parent is only reliable, is unreliable or only sporadically attentive and so forth. So the child will come to the only conclusion that's feasible for it, that there's something wrong with me. Infants and children cannot afford to believe there's something wrong with their caregivers because they depend on their caregivers entirely for survival. Now, another underpinning of shame in Casalino's work is was shown that in the second year of life, children start to hear the word no and stop over 200 times a day as parents begin to move from nonverbal uh, connection to verbal utterances to try to, in some way, um, control the behavior or the actions or the movements of a child, they'll begin to rely more and more on uh, words like stop and no. Um, parents, when they're rewarding or they feel good about the child still around the age of two will hug, smile, or um, I don't know what my yikes, uh, will um, smile and will uh, you know, uh, give a nonverbal cue. But when the child is doing something that takes it outside of the sphere of immediate influence by the parent, the parent will say stop or no. And this, according to Casalino's work, and it sounds entirely plausible to me, begins to link the, the child's name with a startle shift Suddenly, the child that's been exploring or running down the street or picking up an object that shouldn't, when the child's in exploratory mode and in this open, positive, vagal state, will suddenly, when it hears the word no or stop, will begin to... Um, will begin to go into a parasympathetic downshift. And so, they'll begin to associate their sense of their self-representation, which is their name, with this negative feeling in their body. Something is wrong with me. Parents who can repair 
after the with the child who can go up to the child, hug the child, and assure the child that there's still a, a love and a positive regard for the child after they use the word no, stop, don't do that with a sort of exasperated or uh, pleading or harsh tone. Parents who can repair generally uh, will um, uh, nurture children who don't grow up with a lot of shame. But parents who are so stressed out, have so many other obligations or so many other uh, stressors in their life who don't have the time to repair after they use the word stop, no, don't do that, will leave the child in a lasting freeze state or a downturn sense that there's something wrong. And those children can grow up to have core shame. Uh, so that's a second reason why people can wind up with a core sense of something wrong with me. And finally, individuals that are not given encouragement to individuate from family systems due to the fact that they grow up in extremely dogmatic religious environments or cults or family systems that punish children from, for uh, having healthy peer relationships, those children also, or those teenagers can uh, begin to feel a, a sense of shame as well. So um, once again, the core underlying underpinning events for shame is um, one early anxious attachment uh, to an inability of the parent to repair after, during around the age of two to three, where the parent starts using words like no and stop and don't do that without returning the child to a state of connection. Or three, family systems that punish individuals for individuating. So uh, all of these lead to an impaired sense of oneself. There's something wrong with me. I'm unlovable. I'm broken. I'm damaged. And in people with uh, core shame, there are some chronic attributes that can cause a lot of challenges. One, when somebody's observed by others, one will feel vulnerable as if the other people can see this deep flaw that's in us that we're not even really aware of what it is, but there's this sense of feeling averse to being looked at, observed. There's a lot of social anxiety at times. One sense of self is seen as fragile and kept hidden. People with core shame will invariably experience an adult life imposter syndrome, even though they're quite skilled and um, capable in their job, they will feel in some way that they're a fraud. They will have a tendency towards perfectionism. Uh, they will procrastinate when it comes to creative endeavors that can expose their core self because uh, when things are most um, revealing, uh, they will stall. Uh, so for instance, somebody with core shame and imposter syndrome might be very, very good helping others be creative, but when it comes time to submit their own work or um, uh, 
or uh, take a step forward in their own, you know, creative life, they'll stall, procrastinate because there's a great degree of um, fear uh, that something about them will be seen and will be um, will be adjudged as defective. They'll have people with core shame will f have a difficulty in finding purpose in their life. I've found in uh, counseling, and will have a very flawed little sense of belonging to communities, or um, will always feel like an outsider. Um, people with core shame very often can experience body dysmorphia also in my experience because body dysmorphia is a way to protect ourselves from core shame in the sense that it's if we feel there's something deeply wrong with our core self our identity our underlying underlying psyche then what we'll do to defend against that is we'll focus on some part of our body oh my my you know, my nose is too big or whatever, as a way to deflect attention away from this extreme pain that there's something um, fundamentally unlovable about one's sense of self. So body dysmorphia is a, is a protection against core or an, a symptom of core shame. Um, people um, who have core shame will find it almost impossible to hear other people validate or give them a, a recognition or express gratitude for them. It will give rise to their defenses uh, because they won't trust and believe that other people can really see something good about them. If anything, their defenses will entail that they sense that other people really don't know them if they give them a compliment because they have such a deeply challenged sense of their core self that they just cannot believe that there's anything truly worthy that deserves. And when somebody compliments them, they can push those people away uh, or just immediately deflect the compliment. Um, if somebody in your life has core shame, it's important to not give them general compliments about their self because they won't believe it, but to be, give them very specific compliments to avoid the possibility of a rebuttal or being pushed away. So you can, if somebody has core shame, you can begin to uh, help them by not saying, oh, you're a wonderful person or you're a good friend because they won't believe it. But you could say, when you showed up for me the other day, it made me feel really good or supported because they might not believe any global statements about their, their self, but they will begin to accept that certain actions of theirs were beneficial. And over time, that can help alleviate core shame. Um. Countless psychologists note that core shame hinders the, our ability to actually genuinely care for what others feel. It can even hinder the ability for us to develop a healthy sense of guilt that's adaptive because one's sense of self is so damaged and so painful, it overwhelms our ability to be concerned for others. 
uh, when people of course shame, they're very, they'll very often either idealize others as being perfect or being somehow intrinsically better than themselves, or they'll dismiss others as less complicated and, in, and uh, not as uh, complex as they are. Um, Joseph Sandler of the Hampstead Clinic, a famous psychology, notes that a fundamental milestone of secure children is that when they think about themselves, or they see something that represents themselves, a self-representation is like your image in the mirror or your name. When you think about yourself or see yourself in the mirror or hear your name, it will evoke positive feelings in the body. And this goes back to the what we talked about, how core shame is developed early in life. When somebody has core shame, when they hear their name, when they think about their image, when they see their image, um, or even when an, an opportunity is offered to them, it will evoke negative feelings in their body, their body will tense, or they'll feel no feelings whatsoever. On the other hand, children that grow up in secure, you know, uh, attachment structures and don't have core shame when they see their image in the mirror, when they hear their name, it will evoke some sense of somatic pride. Their body will become relaxed, will feel more confident and so forth. And this is important to note because there is no way to address core shame entirely through telling people or by telling ourselves we're lovable, that we're good, that we deserve happiness and all that, because core shame is established in precognitive uh, periods of development before we used language or when we were just beginning to use language. So it can't be intellectually undone. The regions of the brain that uh, uh, host core shame, uh, Alan Shore showed, uh, I think the orbital frontal region of the right hemisphere don't have language centers, but core shame can be addressed by changing the way we feel about ourselves when we think about ourselves. Now, how do we do that? And that's what we're going to do in our meditation practice today. Um, in uh, core shame uh, meditation practices, what we do is we first visualize a self-related positive experience, something that we've done for others that we feel good about. And this can be something that we've actually done or something that we would like to do that, but haven't done yet. But it's essentially, we're visualizing people that we've helped or people that we like to, would like to help or an action that we feel especially proud of. So that's the first step. The second step is we then locate after we've, we've hosted a bunch of positive images, we find in our body uh, a somatic expression of confidence or goodness or our energy. And so 
if we we can also do that very often by putting a hand on our heart center while we visualize these positive images and what we're doing is we're creating a positive internal somatic experience and third what we do is we enhance and extend the somatic experiences we spread them and we try to make them as uh comfortable as we can. And then fourth, what we do is we then hold in our mind an image of ourself, as we might appear in the mirror today. And we're linking these positive feelings in our body with our self-representation. Now, why are we doing that? That might sound very strange, but actually it's directly addressing the actual early experiences that led to core shame in the first place. As you recall, um, the child who had anxious attachment in infancy, where the child didn't feel a reliable bond with a parent and then began to feel that there was something wrong with its core self, or the child who wasn't repaired after the parent constantly said, no, stop, around the age of two, those cases, what they lead to is a child that associates its sense of self or its identity with this negative feeling in the body. And that's why core shame is so, can last for so many years and can be so endemic. It's not an idea, it's a feeling that's evoked when we think about ourselves. And so to address it, we need to change what we feel when we think about ourselves, And that's exactly what this practice we're going to do entails. So now we're going to practice. So find a comfortable seated position and we're going to do the core shame meditation. So I should note that if you'd like to support my work as a Buddhist pastor, that the Venmo is Dharma punks with an X NYC, or you can find the um, PayPal button on Dharma punks with an xnyc.com. So thank you for your support. Finding a good upright position that doesn't require too much stress or, or um, energy to sustain. And um, hopefully it's a nice balanced posture so that uh, we're not engaging muscles the more balanced we are, the less muscular stress, and the less muscular stress, the more we uh, will be able to settle into the body. And that is not only the key for uh, landing mindfully in our inner experience, but it's also the key to addressing core shame in a meditation practice. In many ways, the two fundamentals of a meditation practice is a comfortable seated position that's where your head is balanced over your shoulders and your shoulders are balanced over your sit bones, uh, as well as a comfortable breath. A comfortable breath is one that's relaxed, full and complete, where the exhalations are not cut off, where we're not gulping for air. 
where there's a discernible rhythm and certainly where the exhalations are as long, if not significantly longer than the inhalations. Parasympathetic breathing is breathing that's both slow and where the exhalations are complete, long and smooth, without any sense of being cut off. The longer the exhalations, the more the vagal nerves will function and it will secrete acetylcholine. Long exhalations are associated with regulation of one's autonomic nervous system. So nice full in-breath and then a complete exhalation. And just inclining the breath towards the same kind of breathing you experience when you arrive at a long sought destination that you've traveled a long time to arrive at, or when you've accomplished a task that was stressful and then you come to a complete stop and you just want to let go of all the uh, tension and physical contractions that build up during periods of productivity or stress. And one way to also create an, a meditation state that's inducive to calmness is interestingly to clench and then release different muscle groups over the course of life as we get lost in th thought or ruminations or um, get pulled out of our internal experience by external uh, stressors found on screens, laptops and all that, uh, is that a lot of action potential builds up in muscle groups. And interestingly, the easiest way to relax muscle groups that have uh, been slightly clenched or uh, kept tense in the anticipation of movement is to fully clench and then release. So let's just start with the forehead and the face and just squeezing, making an ugly pinched face and then releasing relaxing the muscles around the eyes, the forehead and the jaw. And then we can lift and, and the shoulders up like we're trying to lift them above our ears and tighten them and then 
drop them. And if you want to rotate them back to open up the chest, that's good. We can squeeze and make fists and tighten the muscles in our arms and then release. We can expand the belly with the in-breath and then release and soften with the out-breath. We can clench the buttocks really tight, slightly lifting the torso and then releasing and settling. And then of course we can squinch the toes and tighten the muscles in the thighs and calves and then release. And of course, if there's any other muscle groups that you'd like to clench and release, this is a fine time to attend to those areas. Then try to reel back in your attention from the world outside, from issues that are not happening presently. Bring your awareness as close as you can to the sensation of your body breathing. Wherever the sensation of the breath is most apparent, If anchoring your attention with the breath is not um, something that's relaxing, some people can find it actually um, disconcerting or uh, uncomfortable, then simply find an internal sensation that uh, you can rest your attention on very often for some, it's the feelings of the palms of the hands, which can be very relaxed, or the sensations of the eyes and just try to relax and settle the eyes. But if you're resting your attention on the sensation of your body breathing, just become aware of your breath in your inhalations are long or short, and the same for your exhalations. And try to find a good, comfortable rhythm. And just keep bringing your awareness back again and again and again as it wanders off back to just the grounding sensations of respiration or 
any other sensation in the body that feels suitable. And if it's difficult, you can also create a visual that's a priming of comfort, like an image of a favorite location, a place where you go to feel safe or relaxed, or the image of someone with whom you feel comfortable and supported. We're just going to sit for a little while in silence before we move to the second part of the meditation.
So at this point, let's uh, move to the meditation that addresses uh, underlying feelings of uh, shame. And so for this meditation practice, what I invite you to do would be to conjure up an image in your mind of someone who has benefited from something that you've done, an act of altruism or care or somebody you've checked in on or offered your time towards, an action that embodies your highest sense of self, uh, or it can be a visual image that represents something that you do that's a benefit to others. Or it could be an image of others looking at you with a sense of recognition, appreciation for something that you're actively engaged in that would be of benefit or something that's a goal of yours. So uh, this could be images of a person or people looking at you with a sense of gratitude. If you find it difficult to visualize uh, images, or conjure them up, or if you find it uh, easier to simply work with ideas, just in your mind, reflect on um, the names or groups of people that would have benefited from anything you've uh, provided or things that you would like to do that would be of benefit to others. And another thing we can do is put a hand and Place it gently on our heart center. Warmth and a hand on the heart center can engage the vagal nerve cluster. When that's toned, there can be a sense of ease and warmth and a sense of energy somatically filling up the chest which is synonymous with well-being. Taking a nice full in-breath to expand the chest. And then try to just see if through the images, through the breathing, through the hand on the heart center that we can evoke a sense of the body state that occurs when we feel really good about 
something. You can just relax the shoulders, pull them back, opening up the chest. Full inhalations, soft, long exhalations, positive imagery in the mind of acts that really evoke our highest sense of what we aim for as human beings, our highest sense of self. <laughs> and whenever you feel like you've gotten your body into a place that feels really good, really full, really, there's a sense of warmth in your chest and a sense of softness in your belly, and change the image in your mind to yourself as you would look in the mirror today, or perhaps as you might have appeared in the mirror as a child. If you can't evoke an image of yourself, just think your name. But if you can visualize how you appear Hold that image and link it with this feeling of ease and comfort and confidence in the body. And just allowing ourselves to hold our image either today or as we appeared in the past, and try to just hold the sense of fullness, comfort, ease in our body, and just linking the two. Changing, in essence, slowly the way the feelings that are evoked by our self-representation. So in a moment, I'm going to ring the bowl and uh, just take your time. As you leave them, the way we leave a meditation is just as important as the meditation itself. If we simply open our eyes and look around, in many ways we can undo the benefits of practice. What we want to do is gradually rebalance awareness so that we're aware of our internal experience and balance it with a sense of what's going on around us, not allowing the mind to get pulled into thoughts entirely, but keeping fully balanced awareness. <laughs> 